You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. So we're in a series that's called Covered in Dust. And uh, this is a series that we're looking at all throughout January through June, all throughout um, the book of Matthew. It's a thematic walkthrough. And the heart and intent of this thing is to go to the scriptures each time and just sort of say, what does it mean to follow Jesus with all of our life? What does it mean to follow Jesus in the big moments and the small ones, the public ones, the private ones, the simple ones, the exciting ones, everything in between that uh, Jesus didn't teach his disciples in a classroom. He taught his disciples with his life. And so the saying emerged in the Jewish tradition that you would be blessed to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That would mean that you would take in everything that he was doing and saying and being and in the case of those 12 disciples, and really in the case of millions uh, and billions across uh, the world and all throughout history, it, just, it, it means to be covered in the dust of not just a teacher or a mentor, but to be covered actually in the dust of Jesus. And so this is our second segment. There's five segments that we're looking at throughout the year. And the first segment was called Following Jesus from the Inside Out. And currently we're in the second sermon of, of this segment. It's called Following Jesus from the Outside In. Everyone say outside in. So this is kind of the, the tag phrase that um, I have rooting us for this time in the next couple of weeks. But basically, uh, it'll be up on the screen. Jesus uh, spends a lot of time in Matthew um, 5 through 7 teaching. Um, and if you missed some of the beginning of the series, I encourage you to go check it out back on the podcast. And it just talks about uh, what it might look like to, to follow Jesus um, from the inside out. What is the uh, internal change that happens in our heart and our mind when we follow Jesus? Jesus comes off the mountain and kind of stops talking and starts doing stuff. He starts um, touching blind people and touching lepers and healing people and and casting demons out of people and calming storms. And and so there's a lot less of the red letters, more of the black letters, red letters being the verbal kind of things that Jesus talks about and more of the stuff that Jesus does. And so the way that I, I kind of proposed it as we look at this portion of the scripture, Matthew 8 through 10, is that Jesus' healings and demonstrations were not just random miracles, but the miracles had a message behind them. And the meaning behind the miracles was that he was demonstrating in people's bodies what his work was doing in their soul. So from Matthew 8 through 10, there's, there's actually nine different healings, three sets of three, each between three healings. He kind of calls the disciples, come and follow me. And between each of these three sets of three, nine healings or miracles in total, he's demonstrating on the outside in the seen realm in the visible spaces of life what it is that we can't understand uh, without spiritualize what he's doing on the inside of our heart. And so we opened up talking about uh, when a leper was cleansed last week when we talked from Jesus 8, or just Jesus 8, Jesus in Matthew 8 rather that the, the leper represented all of us and that he was cleansing the leper on the outside in the same way um, that he cleansed people on the inside. And so this is the Matthew 8 through 10 kind of journal, the, the uh, kind of perennial question, the overarching question. And uh, I'll pray for us, but just take a look at this question as we dive in here. How is Jesus sending me to outsiders to offer Jesus healing from the outside in? How is Jesus sending me? This is what we want to be asking as we look at the scriptures from Matthew 8 through 10. How is he sending me uh, to the outsiders? Jesus is going not to the, like the, the religious people or the popular people or the in crowd. He actually goes to the, the lost sheep of Israel, to the Gentiles, to the outsiders, because they, had, uh, they were more perceptive to his healing. They were more available for faith. Jesus said he was amazed by the faith of the people that were outside of the Jewish tradition. And he'd go to the outsiders because they would accept him. 
and he would do powerful healings. He wouldn't just tell them to change. He would, he would command uh, external things, body things, uh, temperature change, waves, and command things to move and change, and he would be demonstrating what was going on on the inside. So that's the question that we'll look at is, how is Jesus sending me from two outsiders to offer healing from the outside in? And so, Jesus, I just ask as we uh, open up your scriptures this morning um, that, you would, uh, that you would do inside of us what it is that you want to do all around us. And so my prayer is uh, this morning as we, as we get into your scriptures that you might shed light on something um, that reveals um, an untruth. That somewhere along the line as we read your scriptures and as we share stories and as we ask questions that you're going to shine a light somewhere inside of our heart and reveal the place uh, that we don't know you yet or at least we don't trust you yet. And from that place uh, as you, as you um, install truth into our heart. Um, we thank you that your word is not void and that it is fruitful and that it is bearing of, of much strength. And so thank you for just an inside-out change as we look at what you've done in our world from the outside in. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I, I want you guys at some point uh, in your tenure here at City Lights, however long it is, to meet um, a guy that I know and revere named um, Adam Grabluski, who is uh, in my small group. And I don't know if Adam, Adam is right, right raise your hand, Adam. Adam's right over here. So I, I need you guys, that's your first assignment, to go meet Adam. Yeah, Adam's a, 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 a tall glass of water. He's a cool 6'7", is what I say. Sneaky 6'7". Like, you kind of forget um, how, how tall he is. And I always say, I tell him this, is that, like, if we were to figure out that there was, like, a Batman somewhere in Greenville, you know, like a vigilante that was masked and kind of mild-mannered by day, but, like, tougher than you, you know what I mean, than you would at first glance think, I would definitely think it was Adam. He has, like, a scar on his right, right cheek right here. He duck hunts. He gets up at 4 in the morning, so I'm expecting him to come and do setup now because I know how early he is able to get up. Uh, he eats two breakfasts before he goes He's just a tough guy. He's a man's man. He's a good dude. And so uh, anyways, I already asked Adam's permission to share this story, but we were in small group uh, the other day, and uh, I've been doing this thing, you know, like at men's group and at small groups, and I'm like, okay, we're going to do this little icebreaker. So I introduced the idea. It's like, okay, guys, it's, ha, 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 we're going to have this really funny story where we're going to all talk about like the scariest things that happened, you know, in our life. Like, you know, I don't know, the time that we like U-turned and almost got pulled over or dropped our iPhone 8 and it shattered or something like that, like something that's really scary. And, uh, and so we get the, the thing going, oh, this would be really funny. And, uh, and then uh, Britton kind of like, Britton's his wife, kind of like nods at Adam and, and she's like, Adam, it's time to tell your story. And so, so the, whole, the whole group kind of silences down and quiets down. He starts telling the most epic story that I've heard, so, uh, that I'm going to share with you now. So, so Adam, uh, he is, I don't know, I guess he's in high school or college, one of the two, younger than he is now. And uh, he's cruising down the road uh, on Snipes Road. I don't know if you guys know what this is, but it's like an old curvy road that doesn't exist anymore, somewhere around uh, 14 and Rupert Mountain around there. And so he's cruising down the road, and he says... Uh, he says he's cruising, and this black Audi just kind of like veers up. It's nighttime, shines the headlights, real scary, kind of crazy and suspicious or whatever, cruises up around his car and plants itself right in front of him at the stop sign and gives him a little bit of time to stop right, right there so he can see just kind of the license plate. And so he's like, boy, that was weird and awkward and a little bit scary. And so then he said, uh, he's at the stoplight. And all of a sudden, in this black Audi, the two doors swing open on both sides of the doors, and these guys get out with, like, these red bandanas on and these, like, and these guns. And that's the point when the small group just totally sh 
shuts up. Like that's the point when everyone's like, ha ha, this is funny, there's gonna be a spider or something like that. And it was like, no, there's actual gangsters that are either going to be gang initiated or kill Adam Grabluski before he's able to become a vigilante. And so uh, he, he's, like, he's like in panic mode. And of course, you're probably thinking right now, like what would I do if I stopped at the beginning of Snipes Road and these two gangsters came out with red masks and guns, like what would I do? Would I like run them over? And literally, I think that's what Kristen Walker said. She was like, I'll put it in drive and I would just run them forward. I called her out just there, so I should ask her permission too. So uh, anyway, Anyways, anyways, these circumstances show the best of us, I think. And so I probably would have just frozen, and you'll, I wouldn't have been alive. And so anyways, what Adam did, fight or flight, was he kicked the thing into reverse, and he, and he pulled his seat back so he couldn't get shot through like Liam Neeson would probably do. And he cranked the thing in reverse, and he floored the thing, and it, the car went straight backwards. And he said the next thing he knew, he was like looking towards the back of the windshield and all that he saw was black, which wasn't a good thing. And then he looked forward to the front of the windshield and all he saw was black. And then he said that his arms just flung up in the air and he realized that his car was like tumbling down the ravine, right? So this is different from when I shattered my iPhone. And so he's like rolling down the ravine and the next thing he knows is like several times the car's like tumbling down the side of the thing. Next thing he knows, he got blood all over his hands, which is like where his, his scar came from. And it turned out it was just like a face intusion. Is that the right word, intusion? It was just a cut. And I said because the doctors told him later that uh, because your face has a lot of like blood circulating through it, that it caused you to bleed more than you were really bleeding. But that was a crazy, scary story. How about a hand for Adam Gerlusi's, uh small group story? That was incredible. It was like super entertaining. And that was the end of it. Nobody else had any stories to top that. Uh, so bring one if you have one for men's group. Um, uh, when you start following Jesus, it doesn't stop the troubles and problems in your life. Amen? Uh, when you start following Jesus, um, you realize it's not leading you into just sunshine and rainbows all the time. Actually, following Jesus sometimes leads you into more trouble than you're willing to, to, to bite, bite off on. And uh, it only takes a certain amount of time, you know, he, before we realize this thing. It's like whether we're teenagers or, we're, you know, young 20s or 30s or whatever, as we go on ahead and take steps towards Jesus, um, he's actually calling us into waves sometimes. He's calling us into storms and towards affliction sometimes rather than away from it. God's not a helicopter father, and he's not kind of hanging out to make sure that we don't bruise our knees and things like that. Uh, God, throughout the Old and the New Testament, has put people to the lions. He's put people to prisons. He's put people to get bitten by snakes. He's put people to shipwrecks and apparently put people on Snipes Road tumbling down the sides of the roads to get to youth group because following Jesus doesn't mean the end of troubles. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 16 that uh, in this life we will have trouble. It's pre-prescribed, it's pre-in advance explained that as we follow him, we actually might see more trouble. And that's exactly the story that we're going to get into today. So in Matthew chapter 8, I'll go ahead and read uh, the passage to us. It says um, that, that, that Jesus, having gotten off the mountain, having cleansed the leper um, and healed a few others, including Peter's mother-in-law and the centurion, calls the disciples into this boat. They follow him, and suddenly this furious storm comes up from the lake. So the lake they're talking about is uh, the Lake of Galilee. And that lake is actually, um, I think it said 600-something feet below uh, ground level, sea level. And, uh, and then up just north of it is Mount Hermon, which rises up, I think it was, I don't know, a couple thousand, might be... Yeah, a couple thousand feet above sea level. So you have this disparity between the, the lake uh, down at the bottom and then the mountain up at the top, which is cold enough to go skiing on. And the cold air, which rushes on the top of the mountain, rushes down into the warmer area in the basin of the valleys there and causes sometimes these 22-foot uh, swalls or these um, waves. So it says, suddenly this furious storm comes out of the lake and the waves sweep over the boat. And it says Jesus was sleeping. And this reminds me of my dad, because I don't know if you guys have dads like this that just fall asleep in any given, I don't know if you guys are just, 
I mean, I can't barely sleep in my bed, and there's just people sleeping on the subway, like my dad. But anyway, Jesus has this amazing ability to take a nap, same way as Peter uh, takes a nap in, in prison, and Paul is sleeping in prison, and, and, and Daniel can sleep with the lions. There's this kind of propensity in the kingdom of God for uh, the Spirit of God to help us nap, I guess, in situations like this. But anyways, Jesus was sleeping, and the disciples went and woke him and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? And even the wind and the waves obey him. So all throughout the uh, Old and New Testament, um, there's, this, uh, there's this theme, really, that has to do with water. And the two stories we're going to read today, one having to do with a boat and the other one having to do with demons and swine, so that's kind of interesting. Stay awake if you haven't heard that story before. Uh, uh, both of them have to do with water. And water, in the Old and New Testament, the theme of it is um, many different nuances and folds to that. But one of the big tasks of water in the Old and New Testament is to teach uh, us about what God is like. Okay, so for example, I'll show you a couple of psalms here. Here's uh, Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. If you read some of these psalms right in the middle of the Bible, you'll see water pop up a lot. Okay, so it says, Save me, O God, the ocean helps, uh, or excuse me, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths. Where there is no foothold, I have, to come, I have come into deep waters, the floods engulf me. So the psalmist is explaining what we already know about the ocean, even without the Bible. The ocean's really big and scary, and when we get into the ocean, pretty much everyone is, uh, is minimized. Everyone feels small. Nobody gets to the ocean and feels more powerful than when they arrive. The ocean can really uh, make us feel small in light of the bigness of nature, at least, if not God. Okay, so then there's another one. Check out uh, Jeremiah 31. Uh, this is verse 35. It says, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that it waves and roars, the Lord Almighty is his name. So in a world where there's unseen spiritual uh, understandings, God creates seen natural uh, reflections of what's unseen and we are supposed to, as the prophet's talking about, approach the ocean, something as follows, if this is how big the ocean is, and this is how mighty its waves are, and this is how mysterious the depths of the ocean are, if this is how great and powerful the ocean is, how then great, how much more great, and how big, and how powerful, and how mighty is the hand of God? You tracking? So the ocean, one of the things in the Psalms is to, to explain to the Old Testament children, fathers, forefathers, and grandfathers, to remind them of the bigness of God, they would just say, consider the ocean and remember God is bigger than that. This is the theological framework. Next verse I got for you. Who shut up the seas? This one's cool. Who shut up the sea behind doors? So there's some allegory here. And when it burns forth, bursts forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. I mean, this thing could be just a poem. I mean, it's hashtag bars, right? It's really poetic, really beautiful. And essentially what it tells me and what it kind of can, can tell us this morning is that like, like, like God's not like a small architect who built the Titanic and like looked up at how big his creation is. Like the language there is he treats the ocean like a baby, right? So like, it's like he created clouds and gave birth to the ocean. That's different, right? It's not, it's not like, hey man, I like stretched as big as I possibly could and made this amazing massive mural. He's like, no, like I weaned the ocean in my arms and I made it like you put your baby in a onesie and I just wrapped the ocean in clouds. Like this is how big the God, the, the God Almighty is that these psalmists are talking about. And lastly, Psalm 107 verse 29, he stilled the storm with a whisper 
and the waves of the sea were hushed. You know, like, I can't get Echo or Siri to respond to my voice, right? And Jesus is, is telling the ocean what to do. And so deeply embedded in the Jewish culture was this, like, signature understanding like, yeah, there's guys that can make axe heads float and call fire down from heaven. And there's guys that can, you know, sleep with, sleep with the lions and not get harmed. Like, there's these kind of low-level man, you know, miracles. But there, there's, only, there's only one name that can command the ocean. There's only one voice that stills the waters. Like, this is the, there's this levels to this thing. There's power, there's miraculous, and then there's God. And, and the, 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 the domain of controlling and managing the ocean, that belongs to the Almighty. That is his territory and his alone. And so, like, if I were to say to you, um, hey, I was at Cleveland Park the other day, and there's this, like, amazing basketball player, and he, uh, he made all of his shots, you'd be like, oh, boring. I don't really care. You know, some of you guys don't care about basketball. You're like, let's talk about football. But some of you guys might care. And, 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 but then if I kind of continued, and I was like, but it was crazy because he, like, dunked from the free throw, free throw line, you'd be like, whoa, like, that kind of might catch your attention. But if I started saying things like, this guy like dunked with his tongue out and he like wore all red and he had like, he drank Gatorade and ate Wheaties and had Hanes on and had patent leather shoes on, there's just certain things between good, great, and then there's iconic. There's just like a brand, right? And so, and so as the disciples, we'll read the quote back again in a minute, but like as the disciples are seeing Jesus perform this miracle, this isn't just like healing a baby or making a fever go away, like commanding the ocean is, is, a, is, is a startling endeavor. Like to see somebody command the ocean, especially in the Jewish context, is a really big idea. Because, because the way they would be thinking about it is like, yeah, Michael Jordan can dunk from the free throw line. You know, Matt, you know Michael Jackson, he's incredible on the Apollo. Like he did the moonwalk. It was incredible. Whitney Houston can kill it. She did the best, you know, um, national anthem of all time during the Super Bowl. Like there's just these people that have these iconic things, but only God like the hair would stand up on the back of your neck as you saw it happen. Only, there's only one voice that could command the ocean this way. There's only one name above every other name that could, that could still the waters this way, that could hush the, the ocean. And this is exactly what the, the passage says. The, 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 Jesus commands the waves. He says, you have a little faith. Where's your faith? Why are you so afraid? And they ask this question, what kind of a man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So there's this disorientation. So let's just pause for a second. There's a disorienting reorientation out there on the waves that we see here for ourselves. Jesus isn't leading the disciples to the waves to kill them. The, the disciples are in the middle of the night. The swalls come up on the side of the boat. Jesus is asleep. And the conclusion is, this lunatic just brought me out on autopilot and the planes are going to go crash in the mountain. Like, this guy's crazy. This is where we started, right? The beginning of the verse. They're terrified, and so would I be. Like, these 25-foot waves are just swirling over, and this guy just went from being potentially a messiah to becoming like a lunatic, just a, a guru and a, and a, and a weirdo. And, he, and, and then he wakes up, he stands up, and he says a word and commands the ocean to be quiet. He just totally commands the ocean to be quiet. And so there's this important disorienting reorientation that we have with Jesus is that as he's leading the disciples into waves, they recognize halfway through the journey that the waves aren't there to kill them, but the waves are there to teach them. And, and, that, and that the waves, that Jesus isn't leading them to their fear, demise, and death or challenge or threat, but rather they're leading, he's leading them on purpose into the waves so that they could teach them about who he was. All right, the story continues. More water, more miracles, more craziness. Verse 28. 
When he arrives at the other side of the region of the uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men come from the tombs and they meet him. They were so violent that no one could pass this way. So it's like, think about this for a second. It's like you basically just got done with like Castaway with Tom Hanks. You had Wilson and the ball and you didn't think you were going to make it and you lost 48 pounds, you know. Like you go through this whole epic thing on the boat and literally 45 minutes later, now you're in like zombie apocalypse and there's these people that are just walking around in graveyards with demons on them. It's just crazy, right? So Jesus is like leading them out of peace into trouble and into turbulence. So... They're walking along, and the demons, much like the waves, seem to understand his authority more than his students do. The demons and the waves both respond the same way, like, you're greater than. You're greater than, than, than anything um, that, that is in this creation. And so it says, uh, have you come to torture us, son of God? What have, you, what have you come to do? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Um, and then some distance, a large uh, herd of pigs are feeding, and they're like, trying to choose the worst of their worst options. You know, they're like, okay, well, if you're going to put us somewhere, then send us into these pigs. And so, uh, and so he says, go, with one word, the same as, as the ocean. He says to stop to the waves. He says, go to the ocean, or excuse me, go to the, to the demons. The demons obey. They come out of him. They go into these pigs, and the whole herd rushes down into the steep bank, uh, into the lake, and died in the water. So, so just a quick little touch here on, on uh, spiritual warfare. And then I'll kind of get to my point uh, of all this. But a couple things about this. Best quote I think I've ever read on spiritual warfare is that um, spiritual warfare is real. And C.S. Lewis says there's really two mistakes that you can make about spiritual warfare. One is to overestimate it, and two is to underestimate it. It's a good word, right? So another way that I've heard somebody say is, like, you can't counsel out of somebody what needs to be cast out of somebody. And you can't cast out of somebody something that needs to be counseled out of somebody else. And so probably if I spend 30 seconds on this thing right here, um, the Bible and scriptures and probably most of our experiences have seen demonic oppression and we don't have time to get into all of it and all the distinction uh, and demonic, uh, say, uh, demonic oppression and demonic, I can't remember, possession is the other word that you would use. That would be um, somebody, you know, like in this case, the, the, the character that approaches Jesus is clearly possessed meaning the demon is living inside of them. Uh, the scriptures say in Corinthians, this is again quick equipping here, but in Corinthians, the spirit of light and darkness can't live in the same house. And so as we are filled with the spirit of God, uh, uh, dark forces and uh, demons and, and spirits like this can't live with inside the body of a Christian because light and dark can't mix. But they can oppress somebody, and I've certainly seen that before. All that to be said, just like C.S. Lewis says, we don't want to spend too much time thinking about it, but we also don't want to ignore that it exists, that there are principalities behind every personality, and that there are powers of spiritual darkness, and we need to be healthily aware of what those things are. And so let me just equip you really, really quickly. Let's all just say the same thing at the same time. Everybody say, in the name of Jesus. So everybody say, in the name of Jesus. Okay. Um, there are certain names, like in our country, if you say the name Donald Trump, that brings a certain rouse to the room, right? Like that has inclination, it has implication to it. And in heaven, the name of Jesus matters more than any other name. And I know we're not religious, and I know we don't get too hung up on certain words or semantics, but if there's one word we're going to hang on to, it's the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is a powerful name and commands and dictates, really, the traffic of all spiritual activity around us. And so genuinely, the name of Jesus 
uh, even for people that don't even know who he is or talk about him. This is why the Ten Commandments say to don't, not take his name in vain. The name of Jesus matters more than other names. And so my quick equipping word for you is, 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 is twofold. One, uh, if, if you are with somebody and you are consulting or counseling them, consider that uh, that person you're talking to is both a physical and spiritual person. They're a soul that has a body around them. And so there's a place where we counsel, but there's also a place that we can cast. And the way that we would cast off an evil thing in our house or for our children or for any other place is simply with the name of Jesus. It's the way that's been equipped. It's the way that's taught to us. And it's a real thing. And so the name of Jesus, prayer, talking about Jesus, testifying to the blood of Jesus, singing worship songs to Jesus, and remembering the promises of Jesus are all the weapons of warfare that God has provided for us to recognize there is a higher authority than us or the spiritual things that come against us. All that to be said, it's funny to me that the waves that came against the disciples in the beginning of the story came to kill them. But catch this, the reason why those two stories are together, I believe, is because the same waves that came to kill them eventually served to save them by building their faith and killing their enemies. You see that? So two stories, two power uh, moments, two uh, lessons Jesus is teaching about peace for the afflicted, and both of them include water. But in the first story, the water was the bad guy. But by the second story, the water is commanded to be a good guy. So this is where we would get a matrix for this. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to read this story. It's going to be like Sunday school. And it's going to be a great time if you miss Sunday school. Because I did. I never was a part of it. But it's going to be awesome. I read straight through this story. Everybody look on the screen. So we're in Exodus. Moses is leading his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. He's rescuing them. And there's been you know, plagues that have been cast on the Egyptians. God has promised to rescue the people. So Moses has got all these people that are traveling through the desert and they're running away from the most powerful empire the world has ever seen, the Egyptians. They're close at their heel. They approach the Red Sea, Exodus 14, verse 20, 21. When Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, all that night the Lord drove the sea back. Michael Jordan can hang his tongue out. Whitney Hughes can, can sing a run. Muhammad Ali stings like a bee and flies like a butterfly. But only one person makes a hallway out of the ocean. There's only one person that makes a prop out of the waves. Uh, and in and, and, and his play, in his narrative, the ocean is small where he is big, right? So he's got hallways now of the ocean. The waters are divided. This is one of the most probably quoted and remembered uh, themes all throughout the book of Psalms is like, remember what he did in the Red Sea. Okay, so the waters are divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, the wall of water on the right and on the left, and the Egyptians pursued them and the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea during the last watch of the night. And the Lord looked down the pillar, uh, took, looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariot so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from these Israelites for the Lord is fighting them. Uh, or, the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So you're just thinking about this, this, this God who has just split the ocean. He has rescued and saved the Israelites through the middle of this ocean on dry ground. And now he is commanding, just because of a ragtag group of renegade slaves that didn't do what the Egyptian empire said for them to do, is now terrified about the God that's on their side. 
All right, so verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So you're picturing Moses, he's got this hand. It might be Charlton Heston. I don't know what generation you grew up in, but he's got this staff which represents authority. And this is, this is another quick equipping moment, but the name of Jesus and the authority of Jesus is powerful over your household. And as you think about your classroom, as you think about your work environment, as you think about your home, the question is, is what will you do with the name of Jesus? The, the name of Jesus, as you, as you stretch out that authority, Moses is a man just like us, but there was something that changed, not when he had his hands by his side, but when he stretched out his hand with the staff in it, it commanded a sense of authority that I'm not the one commanding the storm, he is, but through the authority that he's vested in me, I can command peace for anxiety, I can command calm in the storm, I can command joy within depression and sorrow, all because of the name of Jesus in our household schools and businesses. All right, lastly, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on right side on their left. The day, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against Egypt, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So this is the sermon of the sentence. It will be on the, on the screen up here. The waves, the trouble, uh, the persecution, uh, the depression, the anxiety, the PTSD, you know, the, the insecurities, the shame, the enemies, the waves that Jesus leads his disciples into, not away from. See, you notice like J Jesus isn't concerned with the disciples, nor with us, to deliver us from waves. He, he's, he's not delivering disciples from the storm. He's protecting the disciples from the storm getting inside of them. He's delivering them from the fear that's hidden in the wave. He, he's not concerned with keeping them in a bubble away from danger. That's not what Jesus has come to do. He's not come to deliver the disciples from danger. He's, he's, he's come to deliver them from affliction from inside of them. He, he doesn't have an issue with storms being around. It's the question, is the storm inside of my disciple? Is the question. So the waves that come to taunt us are actually, actually friends in disguise. I'm not saying that God causes evil, but the scripture will tell us that, that he turns evil for our good, is what the scripture says, that all things are being used for the good of those who are called and that love him. In the case of Noah, for example, the same water that came to threaten his life when Jesus was in the boat saved his life. And so the waves are misunderstood. The waves of life have come to taunt us, but they're actually teaching us. They're, they're, they're uh, un undermining their very mission because they were sent to kill us. They were sent to harm us. They were sent to steal our faith, to rob, kill, steal, and destroy, as John 10 says. But they're actually teaching us in the hands of Jesus. And therefore, they simultaneously build our faith and kill our enemies. The waves that come to taunt us are teaching us who Jesus is and thereby, kill, uh, thereby build our faith and kill our enemies. When Jesus is in the boat, the whole narrative changes. The waves used to become the key antagonist, and now the waves become a prop in the overall story that he's the star of. When we're, we're in a job transition and the waves hit up against the boat, the, the, the enemy is not the wave. The enemy is the lie hidden in the wave that God's not big enough or good enough to handle this situation. So the wave isn't actually the thing that's come to attack us. It's the lie 
hidden inside the wave that's been sent on mission to attack us. What I believe about the wave, about the anxiety, about the depression, about the loneliness, about the attack, about the spiritual affliction. What I believe about the authority and, and the place that that wave plays is the most important deciding factor. So, so when the job falls out from under us unfairly, the story is not about losing the job. The story is actually about how the wave of a job loss is about to drown anxiety forever in our life. Because every, every place a wave is coming is an invitation to learn who Jesus is and therefore uh, understand who we are in light of him. In a season potentially where our boat is being struck by us, all sorts of like public you know, criticism and misunderstanding or, or, or people that have conspired, let's say, against us or whatever it may be, like seasons of tumultuous you know, turbulence, if we're not careful the public opinion of man becomes the main character and the storyline becomes, how do I get my reputation back? But when Jesus is in the boat, it, the wave becomes a prop. It's not the main character. And the people's opinions just become the window of opportunity to lose my need for approval forever, to kill the true enemy, the spirit, the principality, the work of the air, the work of the flesh that's inside of me. The wave has come actually to do a work that undermines its intention. It has come to teach me about Jesus, build my faith, and kill my enemies. And so what happens in this, I believe, is that God puts us into storms on purpose. The Bible says that, that he has caused us, uh, he says in his prayer in John 16, I didn't come to remove them from the world. I actually came them to send them into the world and protect them as they go. And I didn't come to remove them from trouble because in this life you will have trouble, but here's my peace. My peace I give you and take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus isn't worried about storms around us. He's worried about storms entrenching inside of us. And the wave's not the enemy. The lie inside the wave is actually our adversary. So the question is, is what are we doing with the lie that comes in the wave? What happens to us when we're in that boat is that, here's what's powerful, is that the wave that comes up over us and if you've experienced any kind of, we all have, I think as time goes on, any type of anxiety or depression, I think we'd experience it just like anyone else in or outside of faith, is that what's happened is our life has gotten bigger than us. And that's bad news. And the anxiety we feel is the inability to keep control and to keep uh, peace and to keep um, you know, order in the midst of chaos for the wave that's now 25 feet tall where I'm six feet tall. Okay, so the wave has, has created a disruption, but it's a holy disruption so long as I understand its part that it plays. Because when I get attacked by a wave that's 25 feet tall and I'm six feet tall, what that does for me is saying that if that wave is 25 feet tall, it shows me how much bigger God is than that wave. Without the waves of life, we continue to make God small. We put him in the box, we put him in the space where we can control him, and it becomes about our dreams, our destiny, our future, our steps, our story, our heroism, our wins, our losses, and God is small. And without the ability of waves next to us that become bigger than us, we never have an opportunity to see a God that's bigger than those waves, and God will always become smaller than us. Waves are an opportunity that teach us about the magnitude, the size, the goodness, and the power of God. And waves, although they did come to kill, steal, and destroy from us, actually become weapons and tools in the hands of our God to show us about who he is and show us the futility of the enemies that come against us. And so I, I remember, like even a couple months ago, 
uh, when we just kind of started go through church transition, you guys that have been here for a couple months obviously know, you know, we've gone through certain church transition in the last couple months. And, and I, I remember, like, I'm, I'm like a, I'm just telling, I'm always like, Kyra, chill. Let's just sleep through the storm. We're going to be cool. Like, this is going to be all right, you know? And, like, I've never understood the whole, like, anxiety thing. I was like, what are we anxious? I don't really understand. Like, if there's a bear, I'll get worried about her if I'm tumbling down the mountain. But I don't understand the anxiety thing. And I remember, this is back in August, like, waking up, and I'm like, Kyra, like, what, what do you call it when you, you feel like there's, like, you're not breathing as easily as you, as, as you used to, you know? Like, what is that called when you wake up? And she's like, oh, no, no. And I'm like, 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 I just feel like there's just this pressure, and I can't really understand where it's all coming from. And some of you guys are having anxiety. You know, you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And this isn't, I wouldn't call, like, a full-blown, you know, panic attack or something like that, but I know that many of us in the room have. But it's this feeling of, of just this weight, like, you feel like you're this balloon that the air is, like, blowing up, and the capacity of your life to hold everything in isn't going to be enough. You know, and this is sort of my feeling. I was like, I don't want to let anybody down, and I don't want to get in God's way, and I really want, you know, like, I'm just in this place of not really prayer, but just processing and worrying about stuff, which, again, it's kind of new for me. And so I just remember she was like, you want to focus on the moment. You want to, like, feel the pillowcase between your fingers, and you want to say the name of Jesus. And that was, like, all the power that I would ever need for that moment, and God is good and glorious in that. Um, but I, I share all that to say that, that God got bigger for me that day. Like, he had to get bigger for me that day, and he got realer for me that day. And without that wave, that encounter, that revelation, that, that disorienting reorientation would not have been possible because I wouldn't have needed a God that big if the wave didn't get that high. And so the wave's actually a friend in disguise. It was sent to kill me. It was sent to hurt me, at least, or rob me of my faith. But because of the name of Jesus, because Jesus is in my boat, he spun the narrative in the name of his good and glory. Amen? So it's like a book. Uh, you can go check it out. I read through it this week. Uh, it's, it's by a guy named Brian Johnson. He leads Bethel uh, Music, and they kind of built up this whole awesome you know, ministry and worship. And, um, and he actually wrote this book called When God Gets Real, and I'll just steal his slogan there for a second to close this up because I think it's powerful. Um, but he, he basically talks about you know, some of the stresses of ministry and all the twists and turns of life and all the things that have nothing to do with ministry, actually, you know, family and work and everything else. And he just talks about like when the name of the book is called When God Gets Real, it's like when that stuff happens to us, when the balloon gets too big, he actually has this balloon that he does this whole talk on and he pops it with a pen. He's like, you know, in American, you know, culture, men are taught to man up and, and, and I guess women are taught to women up in their own ways, you know, to be, per, to be perfect, to, be, uh, to, to have it all together, to have all the answers. When that, that kind of strength clouds out, you know, the weakness that we come to God with, the neediness to come to God, those things don't go away. They're invisible. They're silent. They're not seen all the time, but that anxiety builds and eventually it pops the balloon and he just pops it. And he kind of talks about what his life was like over the, over the thing. But he said the gift of all that, though, is that there's breakthrough after the breakdown and that there's an encounter that can only happen when you realize the wave is too big for your life and when you realize you need a God that's bigger than the 25-foot wave that's crashing up, up against your boat. Let me read to us a psalm, and this is what my closing blessing will be. Uh, and we'll close with worship as well, of course. But um, if we were to sit down and we were to talk about anxiety... Um, I, I can only empathize to a certain degree. Um, I can only theologize to the understanding that I can see this story that the name of Jesus is more powerful than any name. If we had called it anxiety or called it anything else or depression or anything else that can haunt us, that can carry us, that can lead us into the middle of the night, into loneliness and scaredness and to, 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 to pressure and to anger and to all the things that, that get inside of us when the storm gets inside of us. 
Um, I can only empathize to a certain amount. I can only understand the theology to a certain degree. Um, but what I do know is, is simple, is that the name of Jesus is above every other name. And so the prescription that I think that we would give ourselves um, as we would walk forward to see what God is doing on the outside, to mark what he would want to do on the inside, is to confront waves, understand that waves are coming with Jesus's permission, and that they have come against us in opposition, have actually come to build us and to teach us, and that the way that that happens uh, is through the power of prayer. And so the four things that I, that I have written down, I don't think I have a slide for it, but, but you might take a, take a note in your mind, is that there are four things that we would go to, and I'm going to read these in the scriptures in a moment. But the four things that we would go to is, um, Jesus comes to bring peace for the afflicted, and peace comes for the afflicted through the name of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, through the worship of Jesus, and through the promises of Jesus. These are the, these are the things, if we were to sit down from co for coffee, I would start to ask you questions if we don't have time to sit down for coffee this week. What are you doing with the name of Jesus? And what, what are you allowing to become the centerpiece of your boat, the wave or the one that's in the boat? And the way that we would do this, God has given us uh, freely and made it clear, and we'll get into the end of the chapter as he empowers the disciples to go out and cast out demons in other areas and neighbors. The, the, the key tool and resource that he empowers us with is the name of Jesus. That is his blood, which offers forgiveness. That is the worship of Jesus, which brings praise and exaltation to his name. And that is the promises of Jesus that remind us of where our feet stand in light of who he is. These are the things that bring peace into uh, into the storm for us, into, into the squalls for us. So let me read this passage of Scripture over you. And, uh, and actually, I failed to get it to the team this morning, but I'm going to read it and so we can just kind of verbally hear it, okay? Jesus died for our peace. In Isaiah, it says he came to um, forgive us of iniquity. He came to heal us of diseases. And it says in Isaiah uh, chapter 53 that he was punished for our peace. He didn't die for us to have storms inside of us. He leads us into storms around us, but he has given us, our, given us his peace. So at any moment that we have uh, realized that there is a lacking of, of Jesus-filled peace in our heart and in our life, we've lost something that Jesus paid for and we need to go get it back. Amen? So let me read this psalm. It might be helpful for us as we remember some of the promises of Jesus, and then we'll go to worship in a moment. Psalm 91 reads this way. Let's get it on the screen if we could get it. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, this is you, or at least an invitation, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. You can feel kind of the atmosphere change, even as we read how big He is and how wide His wingspan is as we, as we tuck under Him. This is how we overcome peace. We don't overcome anxiety. We don't overcome anxiety by solving the problem. We overcome anxiety by, by moving into his presence. This is the only victory that anyone can offer anyone on this earth. So it's in whom I trust. This is where we're going spiritually. So surely he will save you from the fowler's snare, from the deadly pestilence. And he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. 
There's a deadly pestilence. There's a, a cloak sometimes of darkness that feels like it just follows us around. If you've felt this before, but you're almost wondering, does anyone else in the room see that I'm just one stumble away from messing everything up and screwing you up too and getting in your way and messing myself up? There's this, there's this, there's this fear that kind of cloaks on us and it's a pestilence. It, it kind of hangs on like weed and feed on the blade of a grass. And it's real, it's spiritual. It's physical and it's spiritual. It's chemical and it's supernatural. And it says, um, surely, surely he will save us from that. He is faithful um, with his shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Some of you guys have night terrors in the middle of the night. You're just up. The the nightmare wakes you up. and, And it's like not just the nightmare, but it's the fear that nobody cares and no one's with you is what really grips you. That's when the storm gets inside of you. The storm's outside of you until you can believe the lie that nobody cares and no one is with you and that you are alone. That's the lie that's made its way in. And so there's this terror by night, the pestilence that stalks the darkness, the plague that destroys us in midday. A thousand may fall by our side, 10,000 at your right hand, and it will not come near you. Here's where the promises get started. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. And this, here's where the promises. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. The, the, the overarching word I'd want you to walk away from this psalm today, if there's a promise, is this. Is he covers you, he covers you, he covers you. The reason, why his, the reason why his dust covers us is because it's an illustration ultimately of everything in our life. It's going to talk about in a moment our feet, even the lowest places of our life are not going to get dashed by stones. Our professional life, our marital life, our parenting life, our single life, our boyfriend, girlfriend life is covered. It's covered. He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. Anxiety is not getting healed by drinking. It's not getting healed by substance. It's not getting healed by vacation. It's not getting healed by rearranging the schedule. It's getting healed because you're seeing his hand cover you is the only thing that will heal you. He's come, to give pers- he's come to give peace to the afflicted, and he's paid for it. And the, the peace that he's given us is established in truth. Just a few more lines here. Listen, he has commanded his angels concerning you and to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands. He's completely created a pasture around you that has been uh, catered and custom-fitted to your spiritual needs. He has not allowed anything to come towards you that you're not ready to overcome with the power of His Holy Spirit. And His angels are on assignment all around you. Angels all around your children's lives. We are not just physical beings. We are souls that have bodies as well. And spiritually speaking, He will not allow our soul to be attacked. He's the one that can hold our soul. He carries our soul. He nourishes our soul. And He has told us that in every storm, every prison, every situation, He has given us a prosperity of soul that can never be taken by any human human hands. This is the promise that he has, that he has covered us with his love. He has covered us with his blood. He has covered us with his name and covered us with his power. Let's stand as we uh, prepare our hearts for this final song of worship. And Jesus, for anyone that has a storm inside of them today, if I could just speak from the outside looking in, I just command in the name of Jesus for affliction to be removed and in its place the very truth of God. Nehemiah talks about the Holy Spirit uh, as an allegory uh, building up the walls. The walls get broken down sometimes and the lies can sneak in and penetrate past the barriers of these walls. But God, restore the walls in the Holy Spirit 
and establish truth in hearts. Your blood was too precious and the price was too high for your, for your believers to receive a, a saving for later, but not for now. And we thank you for your peace that came from your punishment, your peace that came from your punishment, your peace that you have given us to overcome the world, not to rescue us out of it, but rather go back into it with a sense of peace in every storm and every situation. We thank you and look to you now. Amen. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.